this morning. Thank you, Blake. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we return to 2 Corinthians today and just pick up where I left off in December, which means I, we probably won't ever get through this book. But anyway, I will try to remind us about this New Testament church's strengths and weaknesses as we proceed. Why? So that we can once again get a feel for how the gospel saves and sanctifies. Remember that the Corinthian church was made up of a wide variety of ethnic and social groups, but they were mainly Gentiles. And it was a bustling, cosmopolitan Roman city on a busy Mediterranean Sea trade route in the southernmost part of first century Greece. Now that is a far cry from the group of churches in Galatia made up of mainly Jewish believers in what is modern-day Turkey, which Blake is currently taking us through. The first thing to get a hold of this morning is that the Apostle Paul is allowing us to see deeply into his own heart for some very specific reasons. Writing letters to the various New Testament churches allowed all the apostles to accomplish several things that just writing a treatise or a doctrinal statement could never really do. A letter can encourage... Does anybody need a definition of what a letter is? It can't... It can be an email, but it's just not the same. Anyway. A letter can encourage and confirm spiritual growth as well as address specific problems or situations in appropriate ways depending on all the circumstances involved. It can uniquely speak to congregations and to individuals or groups in those congregations and so to churches today, to us today. It can teach and explain important doctrines as well as give examples of the applications. It can answer specific questions that people in the church have asked the apostle. It can convey the apostle's love, his care, his concern, his warning, and direction, all accomplished in and through the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the, the apostolic letters that we have in the New Testament are not just written from the men called to be the apostles of Christ, but from God's Holy Spirit Himself. The infant church in the New Covenant needed this kind of loving care and direction. So the pastoral epistles in the New Testament provided just that. These letters have provided the same benefits 
to Christ's church down through history, including to us. And we spoke a lot as we went through first and the first part of 2 Corinthians about how this church reflects so much of what our problems are today. The Corinthian church had many questions and issues that Paul addressed in his multiple letters. And our passage today is one of several places in his letters to the Corinthians in which he opens up his heart to them. And the question really is why? Why did he reveal so much personal information in these letters? Well, because there's still some influential people in that church who were opposing him and questioning his apostolic credentials and authority and conduct. This divisive behavior threatened the very purpose and existence of the church. So what is Paul supposed to do? He must respond and once again defend his calling from Christ and his actions by explaining his motivations and heartfelt convictions. In other words, as we may say, we get to see what makes Paul tick. So let's see what Paul writes and how he writes it. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now in this one paragraph, Paul reveals two of his motivations for serving Christ in his calling as an apostle. And in the next paragraph, in verse 18, he adds a third motivation that goes back to the heart of the gospel. Now, at first glance, it may seem like Paul's first two motivations are polar opposites and so mutually exclusive. In verse 11, he writes of the fear of the Lord, and in verse 14, the love of Christ. How can the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ work together? to motivate. 
Paul speaks of each of these as being motivations for his ministry with the Corinthians, which is why he brought the gospel to them in the first place and initially stayed with them for a year and a half, teaching, serving, caring for them, and why he still cares deeply for them, even though many have lost their way and even have become very critical of him personally. Now, there are several things going on here that we must observe and think about. In the first part of verse 11, we read, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What does Paul mean by we persuade others? Is he talking about persuading people to see the truth of the gospel? Or something else? In the context of this passage, in this letter, especially in this part of it, Paul is trying to persuade the Corinthians mainly of the integrity of his apostolic credentials and conduct. Not whether the gospel is true or not. Both are in here, but the emphasis is his defense of his calling as an apostle and his conduct among them. And here's where Paul lets us see one of his major concerns. And this should be important for every person, especially leaders. The bearer of the true gospel message must reflect its truth and power and grace in their life. For those of you who got to hear James this morning in Sunday school, This was one of the main things he closed us with. This very truth. The bearer of the true gospel must reflect its truth and power and grace in their life. And you can tell this is what is eating at him. That there's people in this church who are saying one thing and yet behaving very rudely and disrespectfully and selfishly. And what is it that motivates him to persuade others of his own behavioral integrity? This is strange in one sense. He says it's knowing the fear of the Lord. Shake your head. I've been, my head's loose after this week. Actually, last week mostly. Look at the verse right before this one, verse 10. He writes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some of you may have thought, left off with this verse back in December because he didn't want to have to deal with the flack from it for all these many months. But we dealt with it then. And we start with it today. Paul used verse 10 as a bridge to get from explaining our glorious future in our eternal heavenly dwelling to explaining what's motivating him to defend his actions against his opponents. 
an apostle of Christ who was given the responsibility of building the new covenant foundation of the church. Just let that sink in for a second. The initial responsibility of building the new covenant foundation of the church could not let false charges and lies against him stand and fester. It wouldn't just go away. Because that would then lead people into losing confidence in the truth of God's word itself. Rebellion against Christ himself would be the end result. And a believer's rebellion against Christ in this life means that their works will not be of faith. At least some of them, or maybe most of them. That is absolutely horrible. And that results in some sense of loss when they come before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's some sense of loss. The best way to look at it is probably some sense of loss in there could have been a reward for the Savior who died for me. Instead, not a reward in that area. Now, let me explain this a little bit by using a present-day example, okay? We are way too acquainted with earthly court systems. There's more TV shows about court systems, lawyers, and trials than all the rest put together. Our earthly courts... In them, the idea is to mete out punishment for crimes and make sure that the innocent are set free. We get that, right? Or we should. But the divine judge meets out praise and reward for his people's works of faith. And we never see that happen in our earthly court system. Never does the judge open the courtroom with the idea of rewarding all those who have done something decent. And that's the picture of being before the Lord that we have here in Corinthians. Let me say that again. The divine judge meets out praise and reward for his people's works of faith. And why? Because it puts an exclamation point to God's grace in saving us and sanctifying us through the life and providing the power and initiative for works of faith. We also see that there's also some loss of possible reward for those who are his, but their lives or works are not flowing from their faith. In other words, the determination of a person's destiny is not the issue Paul is addressing here. You can't make it the issue because it's not the issue here. This is about reward, not status. 
Believers are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We see that in Galatians and Romans 3. And their lives now are committed to works of faith. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, what is that? What are those? Those are actions stemming from faith that will be assessed and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you think any of the Corinthians who were following the discontented herd kind of mentality opposing Paul, that they might pause at these words and start to consider whether their own words and actions were actually not works of faith. We see that even in defending himself, that Paul is also helping the Corinthians see that he is not the only one who is and will be accountable to the King of Kings. You kids see that connection? So Paul begins the defense of his apostolic authority and actions here in verse 11 by referring to his own fear of the Lord, his own reverent respect and awe for the one who saved him, Paul, who was killing Christians and called him to be an apostle after saving him and the one above all others to whom he is accountable. He wants to serve the one who saved him. And that is not service of duty only. It is service that comes from something completely different. So Paul's first main motivation in serving Christ and the Corinthians is the fear of the Lord that we see here in verse 11 through verse 13. And notice how he backs this up in the last half of verse 11. He says, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. What's he primarily concerned about? God knows. God knows his heart. He knows his failures. He knows when he trusts them. He knows God's got him. He knows God has called him. He knows he doesn't deserve any of it. He was the one arresting the Christians and bringing them to execution. Paul says that who and what he is, his forthrightness, his honesty, his genuine concern for the Corinthians is already known to God. He can say it this way because he is honestly open to the Holy Spirit's conviction of any sin in him that could get in the way of these people loving and serving the Lord. That's his heart. Anybody that serves the Lord should be concerned about that. Believe me, the leaders in this church are very aware of that themselves. And when the inadequate feelings become overwhelming, run back to the Lord. Your leaders have given you that example and you have encouraged them by living that way yourselves. And then he adds, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. He's already said back in chapter 4, verse 2 this, but we have renounced 
disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He deals with this all the way through this letter. And he's been really blunt about it. Would you agree? The Corinthians, you see, really have a very simple choice. Some of us hate simple choices because that means we're kind of more accountable. It really is easier than we want to argue. We really don't have the excuse. You ready? They can either listen to their own consciences, what they know is really true about Paul, or they can listen to the lies of Paul's critics. In verses 12 and 13, we see his convictions of caring for the church and his devotion to the truth. In verse 12, he writes, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now here, Paul again addresses the matter of his sincerity, which he will continue to address through this letter. But the whole point of this is to continue to confront those in the Corinthian church who want the flashy, celebrity, status kind of leaders that the world literally drools over. They have criticized Paul and others for not being that way. Again, one of Paul's main concerns is what? To build up the credibility of the message of the gospel by the reliability of the messengers who bring and cultivate the word growing in the church's life. If you've ever wondered why an elder's qualifications are all, except for one thing, character qualities, this is the reason why. He wasn't trying to vindicate himself for his sake. Now get this. He's vindicating himself for their sake. And yet he was still accused of blowing his own horn and advancing his own agenda. And as we've seen in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he was the last person to boast about himself. This is, I'm just going to read some places where he makes this very clear in his letters, which everyone had access to and heard. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's what he just said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only boasting from Paul was about his weakness, which drives most of us crazy. In chapter 11, verse 30, he writes, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why does he say that? Because he is so concerned to show the true character and the grace of God Almighty through His Son, Jesus Christ, 
that he knows when he's weak, he is strong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is living in and through him. Equipping him. He didn't even take credit for the accomplishments of his own ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And as he says here in our text, verse 12, Paul wanted the defense of his integrity to give the Corinthians a cause to boast about him in the right sense. What? So that, he writes, you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. Do you see what he's doing? You guys in here that are strategizers, you ought to love this. Do you see what he does? Instead of commending himself to his opponents, he chose to arm his friends to defend him. Paul knew that replying directly to his opponents would just allow them to twist his words to fit their own sinful purposes. No, they didn't have Twitter. No, they didn't have face everything. But it happened just as much personally back then as it does now. Words have been twisted ever since day one. So what he's doing is he's equipping his people in this church that he founded to be able to defend him without them, somebody else being able to say, no, Paul really meant this. He really said this. So he equips his believers, his supporters, and gave them a reason or a cause to boast to be proud of him and his helpers. What would they say? You're, you're full of lies, brother. This... It's not what he's like, and you know it. Look what he said in this letter. Look what he said in that letter. Look what happened when he brought so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so to Christ. Look how he diffused the, the petty following this guy and that guy and that guy mentality when we were fighting each other. Look how he helped us celebrate the Lord's Supper with peace and worship instead of selfishness and rudeness and looking down on someone else. And he then ends this sentence by revealing the truth about his accusers, saying they boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. There's just not any clearer way to point out the vast difference between his accusers' motivations and his own motivations. This is pretty blunt, isn't it? Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Yes, he does have a way with words. 
It seems that some even thought Paul was not in his right mind or mentally unbalanced. How would we say that in our day? You're just ignorant fools to believe in this God. And there's about a million ways to say that in our day. If a non-Christian is getting on us because we have been rude, disrespectful, then we deserve their criticism. But if we are handling ourselves correctly and letting God be the one to be our vindicator and we are not carrying out justice on our own and we speak the gospel to someone and they think it's the craziest, stupidest thing they've ever heard, which is a normal response to the gospel. It is offensive. And we love them anyway and keep praying for them and keep you fill in the blank. That does look like a bunch of crazy people until they see the love amongst the brethren and they see the love amongst the brethren in the church, especially. A Christian's conversion does begin a process of restructuring a person's thinking and outlook on life and worldview, does it not? How could it not in the world we live in? And it becomes so different from the non-Christians that it is really not surprising that we may be thought of as mad, crazy, unbalanced, or you fill in the other remarks that are just not nice. To live for the glory of God and not ourselves does look very strange in this self-adulating world that we live in. But Paul wasn't bothered at all by what others thought. He was accountable to The king, so am I, so are you. Paul's second main motivation in serving Christ in the Corinthians, we read in verses 14 and 15, is the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What about this all word? The all for whom Christ died is identified by the very next time it's used, the next phrase, therefore all have died. Paul is talking about an event here, the believer's union with Christ in his death. Together, these two phrases with all point to the all who died in Christ through faith in him. Just as all who are in Adam, all humanity, became sinners because of his sin, so also all who are in Christ, those who believe savingly, become righteous because of his death. That's how he's using these words. It is Christ's love for us that evokes from us a responsive love for him 
and his people. This is not something you can just muster your own strength with on a continual basis. It will not work. And it's only gratitude for the one who loved, rescued, and delivered us, which can motivate us to live by faith in him and his work. Gratitude fuels our faith. Our recognition of his work for us grows and grows and grows in this life as we are fed by God's word and the Holy Spirit applies his truth to our minds and our hearts. And this is why Paul so very carefully directs us back to Christ and his work over and over and over again. This is why scripture constantly reminds us to remember, remember, remember. It's why we sing about him and his work. It's why we are instructed to gather regularly as God's people to worship him. It's why we are called to constant prayer. We simply will not be motivated enough to live for him and love him and serve him unless we are truly grateful for his love and his grace to us. We just won't do it. We'll think that we've got it already. We grew up great. We'll be great. Our family was great. We're not bad like everybody else. We'll just make it. No, that's not what he's saying. And that's why people that are ancient in their years still tear up when they realize and sing a song about Christ's love and amazing grace for us. Everybody in here has that to look forward to. You younger people in here do not have to worry about growing in your love for Christ. The more you face in life, the more you see how faithful He is, the more He works out stuff in ways that you wouldn't choose maybe, but you see how you grow in your faith after you go through it or in it, you'll be growing like this the rest of your days on this earth. He came and died for us so that we may live in him. And this necessary gratefulness gives birth to a life of desiring and learning to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and raised. You ever wonder why you, why you can't just wake up every day and go through the day and desire to serve him? What do you do when that happens? It's a good question. You have to remind yourself. You have to call out to the Lord to remind you of who you are and what he did to bring you to him. And that your life has so much more meaning and purpose than you ever deemed possible. Wherever he's put you, in whatever situation you're in. In other words, the more grateful we become to the Lord, the more that we actually grow to have a desire for righteousness. You can't sign up for a class that promises you'll grow. No matter how much you serve, 
If you're doing it to make yourself feel better, and not mainly because he did it for you first, he weeds this out of us. None of us can just chunk all that at once. It takes a whole lifetime to work on this, and even then, we fall short. Thank goodness for his grace. But that's how you grow to have desire for righteousness. In the next paragraph that we will not get to, Paul reveals what else motivates him in his ministry, and it also is another facet of recognizing and being grateful for Christ and his work. And I'm going to read this, just read it, verses 16 through 21. If you want to please follow along and, and try to see if you can see Paul's heartbeat after all this we went over in this paragraph. Y'all, he's described as a nerdy academic so many times. Sometimes I just want to throw up. You can be a nerdy academic and have a heart for God that just makes people go, I don't believe he cared that much about me. At the same time, listen to this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Not to start World War III, but to reconcile people in Christ Jesus the Lord. God making his appeal through us. Do you want him to do that? Anybody going, I don't know if he really loves me. I don't know what he wants me. This is your calling every day in the simple, mundane things in life. You're an ambassador for him. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. And I'm sure you get what has been exchanged for whom. And here we see Paul's third motivation to serve and love the Lord and his people. Because the message of what God did for him in Christ Jesus has been given to him. In a very unique way, as an apostle. But it's also been given to every believer sitting in this room. As you go about your everyday life. You are an ambassador for your king. Reconciling men to that king through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you can do that in many, many ways. 
And these days, just being nice to somebody when you get offended can speak more volumes than ever before. Being humbled by Christ's reconciling work does what? It leads us all to gratefulness. And that gratefulness completely transforms our everyday lives into ones of purpose and meaning. And being grateful for not just the great things, exciting things, but you start learning how to be grateful for the small things and find out that sometimes that's a lot more meaningful than the big things because the people around you see those small things. So do we reverently respect and live in awe of our great God? Do we appreciate the love of Christ for us so much that we desire to follow him? Do we recognize the privilege that we have to be ambassadors for Christ in the world that we live in. Let's pray. Oh Lord, again, your word brings us to our knees, both in recognition of us missing the mark, but also in the joy of grace, knowing that you know that, and that's why you came to redeem us. We worry about everything. And yet, you have it all covered. You have everything that we need ready to provide us in your grace in Christ. And we know that the key to that is everything you know we need. And even then, your love is so gracious that many times you walk us through the tough stuff in ways that we could never have begun to walk that way. And yet you bring us to trust you more and more. And we know that brings you glory. And we know you use that to get other people's attention so that they might know you as well. Lord, we thank you that we can look to you for all of our needs and that as disturbing so many things are in our world and, and we know that we have it not near as rough as most places in the world that we can be thankful that you are working that the hope is in Christ and him alone and not in our circumstances. It's not in anything in this world that would bring us glory. We know that your peace is the only real peace that matters. Father, we ask that we could grow, be more attentive to your spirit working in our hearts, supplying the word of God to us, and that we could be thankful and grateful and that others would be blessed by the changes. And we ask that in your precious name. Amen.